0: But, but that was a problem because women were in sports and the sports science wasn't there. There was no research. Even, you know, the Germans and Russians, their solution was an easy one. Give the women steroids and train them like men.
1: I am <laughs> so thrown off my rocker, dude. It took me an hour to get to my gym and it takes me normally 10 minutes. Like literally there was a fuel spill on the highway and I didn't even need to get on the highway to get to where I I trained. It's just right. that's how backed up all of Charleston is. Like the army's here. Like I was behind some Desert Storm motherfucker. I was. It's it's wild. Wild. Oh, that's
2: why Joe Joe Biden was driving the. Super I
1: Duke. swear to God, aviators and everything. It looked like Uncle Joe was literally behind me yeah. in Ford <laughs> Super Duty. I was like, Yo, let's go. What are we doing, Joe? Like, come on, help us help us out. Let's break out the cat litter so we can absorb the fuel. Let's go.
0: Yeah, good God, that sounds <laughs> awful. That's <laughs> a great that? start.
1: To I know, great start to the day. How about you, ladies? How you doing?
0: Yeah. Doing
2: okay. Doing okay. Busy day, but the injury-wise, I feel like it's getting better. Good. I don't know. Kind of what better. Is, uh, sorry, let me interrupt. What injury? Hamstring. Something hamstring. I think I strained my hamstring and. It's been painful to walk. It's been painful to do any like hinge movements or like full hip extension. So yeah, doing legs only four times a week. it's been you know kind of a kick in the butt quite literally. but um, yeah, forking out the hundreds for body work and stuff right now, but it's paying off. doing my mobility ash, so I think we're we're about like seventy percent recovered, making progress, so we're good. Good. Love to hear about you, Miss Laura, Miss May. Are you feeling
1: better? Because last time you were sick.
3: Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm good. That's the only thing that's been like rampant around here is everyone's had either like a stomach virus or like something similar to the flu. And like working in a gym, it's pretty hard to not get sick. Uh, This is actually the first winter I've worked in the gym uh, because I didn't start there till last summer. But, yeah, no, everything's good. I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel for winter, that the days are getting longer, lighter, all of that. We're getting a couple 50-degree days, which is like a heat wave. And coming out of right? Like, literally, I am the least person that should live in Boston because, like, I get severe, like, winter blues and hate the cold. So I'm very optimistic and also ready for my Bahama vacation. And- I that's coming up. So. <laughs> Maybe not come back. <laughs>
1: I don't blame you. I don't blame you, but guys, I know I'm really happy for Laura. She deserves to get the hell out of Boston.
0: Boston. Uh, Yeah. So does everybody else. Um, (laughs) Laura. like genuine question. Do you take vitamin D in the winter? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't solve the problems, but it doesn't hurt yeah uh.
3: no, no, yeah definitely and we've started to like adapt to having a lot more rain in our winters than snow which is interesting so it's been a lot darker in general like even right. snowy days it's, it's bright and you know whatever that's not sure. as bad but yeah. the winter gloominess
0: sucks that's yeah, kind of it, was, UK. it was in Salt Lake City for about five and a half years which I do not recommend by the way um and they would get because it was in in the valley would get um if the clouds came in just right it would just lock down uh, i forget what the name of it was and it would just be gray and awful and you wouldn't see sunlight and yeah it really it messes was, with you it would, it would yeah just, i couldn't it do it would be awful and high dose vitamin d seemed to help a little bit to get me through the last winter but moving somewhere sunny helped a lot more
2: mm-hmm. oh. I need
0: sun. <laughs> That's right. Oh God, yes. We're solar powered. <laughs> well, I went to college in Los Angeles and that was great. You know, it's it's sunny and 70 plus or minus 10 year round. and That's I can, nice. can handle that for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nice.
1: And obviously if you guys are watching us on YouTube, you will see that we have Mr. Lyle McDonald on. And if you were listening to us via um, Apple or Spotify, surprise, our first guest is Liz Lyle McDonald. And I had to tell a little story. I actually reached out to Mr. Lyle a year ago back in July um, 2nd of 2023 because I was buying you know his books yeah. left and right from his website as you should not pirating them being a piece of shit actually buying him and supporting the author um, but I also had on my other podcast I actually uh, had a uh, B Chavez on and he was oh, like yeah, telling Broderick. me yeah Broderick yeah and he was telling me that I should have like Lyle on I was like you know what that's going to be a great idea and so I reached out and then a year later, he was like, yo, let's do this. So, Lyle, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Beseech Forum.
0: for having me. Well, and Thank you for putting up with my, flakiness is the wrong word, but I've been doing this a long time, and I just kind of get burnt out, and so for about two years, I, I checked out. Yours actually wasn't, I had an email that was over two years old from someone that I podcasted with before, and like, I didn't even respond. I was that. I just saved them, just put them in a mailbox, and I'm like, uh, when I'm ready, and then first of the year, I was... Almost about to be. I've got that personality type of like, I don't start something here, then I just it would have been another year. And I was like, okay, I got to get back in the game. So I sent out a bunch of emails. I don't know if you remember it, but I was just like, hey, you contacted me back in 2019, and I hope you know. And I'm like, sorry, I'm you
4: still
0: want me on? And if not, that's cool too. So I knew, so like, so I'm just kind of reaching out to people gradually. Um, to get back into this so and i'm absolutely like my own issues notwithstanding like anybody that's putting out good information i'm all about so because let's face it there's so much bad out there so, so i'm absolutely happy to support so. anyone who's trying to do better especially by women which i know is what we're going to mm-hmm. talk about so mm-hmm. much of what's out there is just so awful so
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you guys are living under a rock, Lyle McDonald is like the author of several books, namely the The Woman's Book, which is that bright pink book that hopefully every coach that works with females has read, because I think it is the most comprehensive piece of, you know, literature education that we have out there on everything related to female physiology as it pertains to fat loss, muscle gain, birth control, everything. And it's just so well written. Um, but Lyle, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, like what other pieces of work you've done and kind of what's your passion in this, within this industry?
0: So I got into this, the the short version of a long story in high school. Like I grew up as a little video game computer nerd, which I still am. And my high school had mandatory sports. And I just kind of, so I didn't have a choice to, to, and my, you know, both my parents were musicians. So although I mean, I grew up in the seventies, I played, you know soccer and baseball and that's what we did in the 70s growing up but I was never a sport and then I got into that and I got into cycling and I got into swimming and martial arts and it was just that trite thing about you know your your passion chooses you and suddenly like that's what I wanted to do and that led me to go to college pardon me at UCLA to study exercise physiology and while I was there I was racing bicycles this would have been 88 to 93 this is when inline skating was first sort of taking off all the people I knew in gymnastics were into that. So I got into skating and started racing. And basically, I was a good but not great athlete. And like so many, I wanted to fix myself. So I started bothering my professors. And what about this claim? And what about that claim? And I mean, I'd always loved lifting weights. even I was never great at it. And my professor was just like, this is all bullshit. And he would, so rather than reading the magazines, I just started spending my weekends in the library. Um, So I'd either be out riding my bike or skating or reading research. And then I got out and I mean, I did, I was a trainer for a while, I did that. And it was, I mean, I I don't know what y'all do. It sounds like y'all are trainers and it can be trying. (laughs) Um, Just It's just the nature of it, right? I was motivated, y'all are motivated. And when you don't have that clientele, especially early on, can be a little bit exhausting. And that was when the internet was starting. I mean, I've been on it since it literally since 93, when it was a thing that nobody knew what it was, and was kind of a lot to a degree in the right place at the right time. So that was about the time that that very low carbohydrate diets came back into uh, the, the area of interest in cyclical ketogenic diets. And that was my first thing. So I wrote this awful book that I published in 98. That was kind of like the women's book, a very technical tome that nearly broke me. I mean, it was should have been a career ender, not a first book. Mm-hmm. And wrote that, and I just kind of established myself. So over the last, you know, basically, I was trying to fix myself and got a career out of it. And so since that time, I want to say I've written fourteen some odd books. Mm-hmm. Um, two of I think the the more well known was in 2004 i wrote something called the rapid fat loss handbook which was a sort of like the idea was look people are going to crash diet if they're going to do it they might as well do it in the best way possible in terms of optimal nutrition being healthy you know not whatever i mean y'all are more aware of it than i am now but you know the the utter bullshit in a lot of the women's stuff. I mean, I still do. When I'm at the grocery store checkout, I look at women's world that lose 47 pounds with the thyroid reset. I mean, I I read it because it makes me laugh, but this (laughs) is what women have presented to them and it doesn't work. So I wrote that and it was also meant to at least allow for the option of moving back into a normal eating pattern. So anyway, so I did that. That was also the same year that I was the first one to write formally about the concepts of flexible eating. Cause I, I was, I was the first guy and and this would have been 2004 and nobody was writing this, right. This was still during clean eating, rigid, all that stuff. And everyone's like, you're full of shit. And, you know, it would take about a decade before everyone to really sort of jump on that uh, bandwagon uh, by the mid early 2010s, mid 2010s, everyone, that's all anybody was talking about. And there was a flexible dieting company and, um, Every once in a while, people would even mention my name. Not often, but you know, like I was I was the first guy talking about it. And then I wrote, you know, then I kind of burned and I wrote this protein book in the late 2000s. And then that kind of led me into the 2010s. And this will sort of segue us into this was in 2014, someone in this industry who was lying about being a dietitian at the time, literally just plagiarized my book on flexible eating more forward. And suffered no consequences probably sold more copies of it than i ever did and i write best out of spite and anger that's really my driving force frequently and i'm like all right i kind of need to update this anyway i started this book and it kind of spun out of control and i got to this bit that i'd been putting off for literally a decade which is huh guess i need to address women's issues and i'm not joking like i knew intuitively i would seen it in clients and trainees I knew women had issues that, in terms of, sorry, <laughs> that could come across. We good. do, we do. All got issues. I don't <laughs> want to talk that way. But they had difficulties and 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 things that men just simply didn't face in terms of their fat loss, in terms of their dieting that they lost more slowly. The patterning thing, the hips and thighs, and and all <laughs> that stuff that I had made almost a conscious decision not to get into it because I knew it was going to be a lot of work but I got to this section and I'm like all right <laughs> and I was like how hard can this be it shouldn't take more than four or five chapters <laughs> little did I know so I started working on this and I would start putting up little sections and and people on Facebook and whatever were like we need this book And I'm like, well, I could write another generic fat loss book, and there's a zillion of those. Or I could transition this into another, like, a full-featured thing. And holy shit. I mean, I realized I was starting from scratch. Like, I knew nothing other than what I'd seen. I didn't know the terminology. I didn't know menstrual cycles. I I was really starting from scratch, for better or for bad. And it took me, what, three years to get that thing done? And I had to make it volume one because if I'd finished the training stuff, it would have been 600 pages long to address. So I, I decided I'm gonna split it up, make this fat loss and nutrition, and then assuming I ever get around to it, um, do, do the training stuff. So it's basically just been, it all started with me trying to fix myself and I turned it into a career. And I just have happened to, like if you look over my career, I don't like to write the same thing twice. Generally speaking, like, I I mean, a lot of people, they just keep putting out the same product over and over and over again. I'm like, ah, I've written about this. i want to go learn something new. And every monster project, my first book, 10 years later, my protein book, and then 10 years later, exactly my women's book, they just nearly break me um, to read every paper ever written because I got to know it all and then write that thing. And then I did do a short follow-up on that with more of a birth control centric thing to address the issues in terms of athletic performance does weight gain occur does it form fat loss you know these are questions that are important i mean what is it something like 50 percent plus of women are on some form of hormonal birth control these are important issues and and one thing i think that really comes out of it again we'll talk about is for the greatest part of the, the you know the decades that research is being done women are completely underrepresented. It's something like 80% of the research is in men and like 20% is in women. And in sports science, especially, they just assumed that women are just little men and we'll train them the same. And it doesn't work that way. Even now, it's still, there's not equity of any sort in, um, in terms of the research realm, except in one area, which is weight loss studies, it's reversed it's like 80% women, 20% men, which is not surprising. And even there, there's some researchers that are like, all the approaches that are right for women, appropriate for men. And the answer is no. I mean, there are different psychologies on average. And if you wonder why I'm being very careful in my language, it's because in the modern political environment, I gotta be real careful. So when I say certain things, it's me speaking, in generalities but anyway so that like the men the men's weight loss studies they're like we made it a competition and tied it to their sports teams and i'm like okay i mean whatever but there are differences in psychologies in terms of how women in the the amount of support that may be needed the approaches whether it's nutritionally or otherwise so so, but anyway this became a real problem because when women started to really enter sports in the '60s in America, in the '70s, with Title Title 12, Title 9, I forget. I think it was Title 12 when basically the government said women have to have the same access to everything in public schools as men. And up until that point, there had been a real question, which was: Are women not going into sports, or girls? By which I mean, in, you know, at younger ages, because they're not interested, or because they don't have access. And the answer was it was lack of access, because over the next decade, um, women's involvement in sports just went up and up and up. It was a matter of not having access and it being a very uncomfortable place for women to be and and things of that nature. Um, And we're at the point now, I want to say at the Olympics, it's about half and half. It's about 50%. Like, it's it's almost approached uh, equity. In American sports, it's not quite there, but that's because American football. That take that out, and and um, but but that was a problem because women were in sports, and the sports science wasn't there. There was no research. Even you know the Germans and Russians, their solution was an easy one: give the women steroids and train them like men. Which, I mean, the so first approximation, <laughs> right. it doesn't work. I mean, make, make no mistake, but. Sports science just, and then we saw in the 90s, women were ha- they were seeing these issues with eating disorders, bone mineral density, reproductive dysfunction, and it just wasn't being studied. Um, and that's changing, but it's still not really there. Um, and I don't know what, what y'all's ages are. I mean, I've seen the big change over the last 20 years. When I started in the weight room in the 80s, women just were rarely there. And if they were, it wasn't a particularly accepting environment let's just put it that way because men were be, men were being assholes about it. i mean that's the reality women did aerobics classes and men went to the weight room never the twain shall meet and i've really watched a, a step change over the last three decades um, and i think for good or for bad a lot of that is due to social media and due to the information being out there and I, the, my next sentence i'm going to be very careful in my language is there was that fear of, oh, if women lift weights, they'll get, you know, manly, which was coming out of, sort of drug fuel bodybuilding and a lot of things. And I mean, there's decades long of, you know, women, your ovaries will fall out. In the 90s, the health wellness center I worked at, I shit you not. Doctor told someone, if you do the Stairmaster, it will damage your ovaries. I kid you not. Like, this was in, like, 95. This shit was still out. And it still is. And... Then women saw, as social media started, that again, this is such. This sounds so bad that women could lift weights and still be "quote unquote" feminine. And again, I'm using that in a culturally traditional term. Not women are feminine, like regardless. Y'all know what I'm saying. Hopefully, your listeners. Yeah, know. I'm <laughs> just trying to avoid getting, you know, pre- you know, massacred, <laughs> freaked out by vice. Y'all know what I'm getting at. But they're like, okay, they would see, you know. Steffi Cohen and these female powerlifters being like, okay, I'm going to lift 500, then lift 575 pounds, but it's like, it's not going to make me in. So it's, it's been a real change. And I've watched the weight room, you know, gradually there's, you know, it's probably about half and half, um, men and women, it's certainly gotten, and it's also the women that when women are entering the weight room, you're not seeing the, oh, you know, just don't go over three pounds. And there was that one, expert who famously said women lift more than three pounds they'll get bulky it's like if you have a kid your kid weighs more than shit like that i'm not seeing that i'm seeing i've been watching women's powerlifting grow for the last decade i've been training an elite female lifter that division is just um exploding in both the the younger and the the masters level it's probably the last generation we'll have that the women are, like, afraid of, you know, you'll never get a man, you won't be able to get pregnant, your ovaries will fall, and all that other, all that. I think we've seen the last generation where their moms were telling them, because now we've got y'all being like, no, the next generation of high school girls is not going to be being told what they were being told in the 70s. So anyway, that's a very long version of how I got from the beginning of my career to the women's book, which maybe I'll shut up and let y'all talk about. <laughs>
1: No, I think that's great. And we would obviously love to talk to you about, not necessarily your your book, The Extreme mm-hmm. Rapid Fat Loss Pat- Protocol, but sure. in the yeah. context of, it, of a contest prep, like, can you please yeah. actually describe to us a brief and easy to understand concept of fat loss other than people just automatically thinking that they're going to burn fat by being in like the heart rate zone, wearing their sure, weight sure. trainers, you know, all that shit.
0: So, I mean, the, the fundamental you know, factors of fat loss in terms of the things that I pay the most attention to, I'm quite sure it's the same for y'all, is you have to create a calorie deficit, whether it's reducing your food or increasing your activity, and you have to get sufficient protein. Everything else, to me, tends to be very negotiable in the sense of what mix of carbohydrates and fats, and there are, again, other considerations. Women have changes through the menstrual cycle and things that tie into some of the deeper physiology that I'll, I'll probably touch on, but that's the, the biggest factor. And I do think that's also a place where I've seen another step change in the sense of traditionally when women did fat loss eating, it was 80% carbs, 10% protein. And so it's, it's like, all right, breakfast was a bagel and, and orange juice. And then lunch was maybe chicken as a salad and then dinner like protein was very low and they weren't weight training and they were just doing a lot of cardio and and that, as they changed those eating has they got more involved in weight training well higher protein is part of the subculture and i can't count how many women i've seen online and i'm sure you have two that did you know the cardio grind with the traditional diet and never got anywhere and then they started he- heavyweight training. And I don't mean powerlifting. I mean, really work, challenging themselves, more protein and lower car- moderated carbs. And they're like, in two months, I saw more changes that, than I saw in that. But so, as far as contest prep, yes, you have to have a deficit. You need to have sufficient protein. The rest of it is kind of negotiable. How much training are you doing? Food preferences? What improves adherence? You know, I, I tend to be more of a, for women especially, More moderated carbs, slightly higher fats, Just unless they're doing a ton of training, right? If you're in the weight room two hours a day, that's very different than what the average person might be doing. A couple of the mistakes I see, and this just comes from tradition, is women will go, all right, contest prep. Start with two hours of cardio a day, start, and I'm going to cut calories as hard as I can. And invariably, that causes problems sooner rather than later. And that's just how it was done all through the 90s, all through the 2000s, my entire career. That's just what you did. And people go, but that's how the people who made it to stage get there. I go, right. But what about the people who didn't? Mm-hmm. What about the people who cracked and ended up with eating disorders or worse? Like, to me, like we're focusing on the handful that made it rather than the ones who didn't. And I do think that... So, so fundamentally, you have to create the deficit to get enough protein. The key is, and what I think I've seen a big change in the approach to it, at least among people that are a um, little bit more current, is you know start with the least amount of cardio that you need. Start with the smallest deficit that you need. Start early so that you've got enough time and so that you can bring it up gradually so that women's systems don't just get so immediately stressed. So as an example, um, Within five days of a big deficit, whether it's diet or cardio, women can already start to see drop in thyroid hormone, which starts to kick in reductions in metabolic rate, reductions in things, uh, the hormones that control estrogen or progesterone production, like five days. So women who just jump into that from the get automatically cause problems, where if they're doing it more gradually, that tends to at least... Limit how long it takes. Like the reality with contest prep, when you're dieting to the lower limits, the idea that you can avoid all these problems. I wish. I mean, you can if you add, you know, drugs, but yeah. without that, it's a matter of when the problems will start more than if. Mm-hmm. But the ideal to me is to limit them as much as possible, right before you your menstrual cycle function disappears, before all the problems really start, and. Do, that is a matter of starting early, doing it more gradually, which is something else I just want to bring up because I do see it a lot. And again, this comes from the men's position. This the, the idea came through that, oh, if you're doing two hours of cardio during prep, you're doing it wrong. Well, if you're a larger male and have plenty of calories to work with, that may be true. However, if you're a smaller female, if you're 125 pounds in that range and you're trying to get down to 10% body fat, how do you keep the deficit? There's only so low your calories can go, right? Again, it's one thing if you're a dude and you've got 2,400 calories to work with. You can keep cutting calories and survive. You're a woman on 12, 13, 1400 calories. At some point, do you just keep cutting? Cardio has to come up. Like, uh, I mean, I I, I have, a, a my, my guess is that uh, Megan you probably are you do you compete yeah yeah like what do you I'm just curious what you find in that regards like usually what has to happen like your calories can only go so far when your body starts to adapt you just like, oh, yeah. keep gradually yeah. marching your cardio up because you have to keep the depths Is that what you found is the case
2: yeah definitely and then I know we're all in agreement too is when we do see that stall that actually increasing food and dropping down expenditure can actually help kind of mitigate that too.
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's some real weirdness that goes on. And that gets into some, even even early on, even before I looked into this in detail, people knew that this happened. The question was simply why. And there were some early things written about, you know, from a biological and evolutionary standpoint, women's bodies are, they, they, as one, you know, they spare both carbohydrate and fat stores. They're very good at it. And it was a survival thing. Right. And there's some really interesting data if you go back to, you know, when concentration camps and with starvation. Women are far more likely to survive than men. Um, and I think that there's, I know y'all are like, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think from a physiological standpoint, it's like, and again, in a very real way, like once a man has done what he has, what little he has to contribute to reproduction, which is not much in the big picture of things. If there's not enough food, it actually is probably better for the survival of of the mother and the child for him to fuck off and die. Because that means he's not using resources that would be valuable for her. I mean, it's just like it sounds it sounds really cold and brutal, but it's true, right? If there's not enough food to go around, then better her and the and the the child to get it. He's done. I mean, yeah, is it would it be great if he's around to help promote sure but is he really necessary in the most strictest sense? And the answer is no. Um, And so women's body is very much evolved to, to be able to do that and contest dieting or dieting in general is really just in a way, it's just controlled starvation. And when you're trying to get to the extremes of leanness, well, that's why your body shuts down things like the reproductive system and it doesn't have enough energy to go around. That's why your hair doesn't grow as well. That's why nails don't grow as well. When your body has to make a decision about what systems to keep supported, short-term survival is far more important than the rest of it. Um, So yeah, so for women, it is more difficult. And I think the way I heard it put one time, I think even more so than for men, women have to coax fat loss rather than try to force it. When they try to force it too hard, the body just sort of just responds very badly and fights back almost harder because it is it is adapting to such a greater degree. Yeah.
2: I think that kind of goes into our next question right Ash like what makes that last bit of fat especially for like contest prep when we're getting to that non-realistic like sure. level of leanness what makes it that like part very difficult for most females do you think it's more of like a mental aspect to like push deeper or is it physiological
0: i think it's physiological because i think you know even back in the day you would see um you know the most driven bodybuilders and physique athletes the drive was there and frequently (laughs) they would get on stage and i mean their upper bodies would be shredded and their you know their hips and thighs not so much and there's some biology. So I think some of that was also the approach that was being used. This is another place where I do think women frequently benefit um, from slightly different uh, dietary approaches than, than, than men and this also will tie into why women just generally uh, frequently don't get the results that they want. So I'm need to get into the weeds a little bit on this. So when you're talking about fat cells, you know their fat mobilization, um, well, fat storage is predominantly through insulin, other hormones like estrogen, progesterone play a role and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, but mobilization has to do with a, what are called beta receptors and adrenaline and noradrenaline and the hormones that can release during exercise. But what you see is that different areas of, of body fat are set up biologically different. So... First, there's visceral fat, like there's that deep gut fat, which women by and large don't tend to carry. Estrogen tends to prevent that accumulation. Women with polycystic ovary syndrome that have more testosterone frequently get that Um, when women gain excessive amounts or, you know, large amount of body fat, they tend to gain visceral fat. But by and large, women don't have a lot of fat. Upper body fat tends to be easier to mobilize than lower body fat. And the reason it has to do with these these receptors. They're called again. They're called adrenal receptors. So there's beta receptors, which are the good ones, those mobilize fat. And there's what are called alpha receptors that inhibits fat mobilization. But when you sort of go from the top down, from upper body into abs and lower body, what you see in women, what you see is that the ratios of those beta and alpha receptors change. So upper body very easy to mobilize, very easy to get rid of. Lower abdomen, you know, for men, that's the trouble spot, right? Men typically have very lean legs, just don't store fat there. And it's always abs and low back. And then when you get into hips and thighs, you can see that women have like nine times as many of the alpha receptors, the ones that inhibit fat loss, as the beta receptors. So it becomes very hard to mobilize. And you see, you've got that factor, right? Typically, I mean, what happens when women diet down? First, your face gets a little bit lean, women will just be, you know, shredded, like they'll just get veins and cuts. They'll get that razor six pack early. And then hips and thighs are usually last to come off because the body is mobilizing what's easiest. And we'll also talk about some strategies that they can help to get around that. Whereas men, you know, again, their stubborn fat is the abdominal area in the low back, which is a little harder, but for men it's just a matter of patience. For men, it's just like, suck it up till you get to 8%. You know, guys will ask me, you know, why What's you know, why do I have this ring of fat around my lower abs and belly? And I'm like, you suffer from being a man. <laughs> and there ain't nothing you can do about it other than, but for men, it's a matter of just being patient. Women can get there and still, you know, like shred it up. You've got that going on. You've also got just the body fighting back in general. Metabolism is decreased. Um, overall because of, you know, hormones like leptin and uh, nervous system and thyroid and all of that stuff. So like everything is getting more difficult, but you just got this fat area that's very difficult to mobilize. Now, even that is there's an evolutionary basis to it because that hip and thigh fat is there to support pregnancy and childbirth. There's an oddity, and I'm sure y'all have heard it uh, or have heard this from women, that's the hip and thigh fat gets easier to mobilize after childbirth mm-hmm. because that's what it's there for. And there was a period. This is years ago, and I'm like, "Can I figure out what's causing this reversal hormonally and figure out a way?" Like I was looking for a way to manipulate this, and I never did find one. But I mean, I'm sure you've heard of women that you know they even maintain, even in maintenance when they're breastfeeding, their body fat just comes off very rapidly because that's what it's there for. Now, women in the modern era will be like, "Well, what if I don't have, wanna have kids? I go, Your body doesn't care, right? Your body was formed over this many years. So you have an issue where fat will eventually be stored in that area, but it's much harder to mobilize. And when they've done research on fat loss in women, typically when women lose fat, it comes off in the upper body first. And when they gain body fat, it tends to go to the lower body. So you have this real, there's even, <laughs> here's a super weirdness that people observed back in the day and didn't believe. Women can actually mobilize fat from the midsection. And if it doesn't get burned off for energy, it can be stored in the lower body. You can actually, because we used to report that in the 2000s. They're like, I'm getting leaner up top but I swear to God, my hips and thighs are, are getting larger. And we were all like, bullshit doesn't work that way you're in a deficit you can't get but it, it actually turns out to be true that, that women if you mobilize fat from the midsection which is easier it if it stays in the bloodstream it can go back into the hips and thighs so you actually get leaner up top and yeah women are screwed I mean seriously like, like, like <laughs> our bodies hate us in general but women's bodies hate them way more in terms of all this stuff mm-hmm. because that's what the so the question is less like why? And more like, what can we do? I'm actually curious. Have you seen that in women? The the whole leaning out up top while they swear their hips and thighs are getting.
2: Yeah, that's I mean, typical fast. with a lot of competitors too. Like they're lean everywhere, and then their glute ham tie in. Like that's the last thing to come in. Oh, yeah. Their quads for sure. Yep. But I also think it it has to do with like how much muscle mass they
0: have for it to like
2: push against the skin i agree
0: agree with you to a degree i absolutely think that's true just to apply you know provide some firmness underneath it Mm -hmm. Uh, because i mean even in the men's divisions now striated glutes are kind of required in the natural level and men can have men's hip and thigh fat is similar biologically but there's just not as much of it. Right. I mean, I've most men like, I mean, I'm this way. I've been very lean and I've carried a lot of body fat. My thigh skin fold never went above three. I just don't store fat there. And whereas my midsection, like I could tell my waist would go up and then back down. That's just where it was. And there's probably like early on, a lot of this is just when, you know, when boys and girls hit puberty and the hormones sort of go different directions, women lay down more fat cells there oh, there's another thing for y'all to be, uh, (laughs) that makes it even harder. When men gain fat in their upper body, the fat cells get bigger. When women gain a lot of fat in their lower body, they make new fat cells frequently. So now they have more fat cells, which are much harder to lose. So like the whole system, again, is wired to provide women with, you know, the fat stores to support pregnancy and childbirth and breastfeeding. And it doesn't care that what you want to look like on stage. So, so, so there's a bunch of things. I think part of it is it just gets harder. And you do see some people like it's easy to, I mean, I'm sure it's easy to give up. You've got issues. I mean, it's true in male competitors too. This isn't a women's thing. It gets hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it gets real hard when you get down to 8% and you eat, you know, the perfect meal and 30 minutes later, you're hungry again. It's like, how can you stick with that? And women's bodies are fighting back harder, and the hips and thighs aren't coming off. The only thing I will say about that, that I'm, again, I'd be curious what y'all have seen. When you get down to that last bit of body fat, when it starts to move, it starts to move fairly quickly. Yes. Right. I, I remember the one of the last physique competitors I trained years and years and years ago, and same thing. I mean, her upper body, men, and that is what's funny, men wish they had the six pack that lean women have and women wish they had the lean legs that men have. Thus is the balance of the universe maintained, right? Like each one gets what the other one wants earlier and her thighs just weren't coming in and weren't coming in. And when they started to come in, like every day, we were seeing something new, but that's assuming it's sort of coming off in the first place. I mean, women will get to 15, 16% body fat, and, you know, like it's said, laser six pack and then the hips and thighs, depending on how they approach their diet and training, may not have moved at all. And there are things that can be done that, that at least make it easier.
1: Yeah. I think that's actually a good segue into our next question. Are there any dieting strategies or like even foods to help accelerate fat loss in, in female athletes, especially? Right.
0: So I don't know that so much that specific foods will accelerate fat loss, but there are things that can be done dietarily and also training wise and they do integrate and that was a book actually when i did write that you may call it's called just the the stubborn fat solution because if you've noticed anything i am terrible at titling my books just like this is the protein book (laughs) i'm just just not good at just like to the point um Just not, I'll do the writing and the research. And it it addressed all of this. It addressed the physiology and, in terms of, you know, insulin and fat storage and mobilization and all these details and and went into some specific strategies. The one thing I think when you go back historically into how women typically diet, both for contest prep and just in general, again, it was this very, you did lots of low intensity cardio, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. They very high carbohydrate diets and for a bunch of reasons they're in the women's book and I don't wanna get too far into the details, that can cause problems because what you actually do see happen, and this makes no sense, women use a greater percentage of fat for fuel during aerobic exercise than men do. Which you then ask, then why don't they lose fat more effectively? Because we know that they don't. And that confused me for years and years and years till I looked into it because what you then see Men use more carbohydrates for fuel during aerobic exercise, but then they use more fat for fuel the rest of the day. As you all know, what's more important? The 45 minutes that you burn, you know, know, sweet jack shit on the treadmill or the other 23 hours of the day. So women burn more fat during exercise, and then they tend to burn more carbs the rest of the day. So if you then combine that with a very high carbohydrate diet, women are basically just kind of staying in this mode. They mobilize a truly piddly amount of fat. I mean, let's face it, cardio is just (laughs) almost worthless for for that. But then they're using carbs the rest of the day. So in a sense, some of the dietary, general dietary strategies and also training strategies that I've seen that I think have kind of changed that. hate this phrase, but it's true. When women do it, it turns them into, and let's all say it, fat burning machine. But it is in this sense, it is helping to retool their system. Like I'm not talking about the fat burning zone and I'm not talking about all that old school bullshit, but it is making their bodies utilize fat more effectively the rest of the day. And what I think I've seen happen very much in in the modern era is... Women moving to more moderated carbohydrate intakes and realizing that obviously raising protein, which physique athletes always did. I mean, protein intake was never an issue. But if you're talking about general public, getting a lot of women to eat even reasonably moderate amounts of protein can be a real fight. Um, you know, you tell them, even if you're like, I would like you to be eating 120 grams a day, you know, a gram per pound, gram per pound of lean body mass. And they're just like, that's so much. And it's like, but it's really not, right? When you when you sit down and you're like, look, you know, that much chicken, that's about 30 grams, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe a little, somewhere in that range. You're like, they're like, all right, well, I can do that. Like breakfast, usually the problem, like Greek yogurt, I wish more people would eat that. One half scoop of protein powder, boom, 40 grams, right? Do the same thing a couple more and you're good. There's tons of protein bars and powders that don't taste like shit like they used to, that actually taste like milk. like, But What I've seen, probably y'all have too, when women do raise their protein, it's life-changing. Like their appetite is better, better body composition changes. They're like, once you get them to do it for a long enough time period, they'll never fight you on it again. It's the initial fight, like, oh, but protein will make me bulkier. Again, all that old, that I'm sure y'all have been fighting the good fight on for years. And so that's a big part of it. But invariably, when women raise their protein, usually when they start doing heavier weight training or more intense weight training, dietary fats and carbs tend to get moderated. That alone seems to help with a lot of this. There's also research from way back in the day that even, pardon me, four days of very low carbohydrates, which is, I mean, I'm talking about like sub 100 grams a day, naturally inhibits those receptors that inhibit fat loss, right? So you're inhibiting an inhibitor, it's like taking your foot off the brake. And again, people had noted, they're like, yeah, when women go on lower carbohydrate diets, that lower body fat seems to get easier to uh, mobilize. Problem being that very low carbohydrate diets make a lot of people feel terrible and in predisposed people, will drop them into such a fantastic depressive state that they're probably unlikely to stick with their diet for very long because some people are, you know, if you're, if you're prone to depression, but even in my experience, even moderating carbs tends to go a long way in terms of, you know, and we're talking about numbers, I don't really like percentages, but it ends up being like when you math out rational diets, like 30 to 35% protein Forty percent carbohydrates, which again, if unless you're doing a, just a shit ton of training, you know, two hours a day of intense weight training, it's like how many carbs do you need? And then fat, you know, twenty-five percent thereabouts, which can help with hormonal function, may help stave off some of the reproductive stuff uh, that can that can occur. That alone seems to go a really long way in in helping with this again is that all you know i'm curious i i come from very much a research background but i'm always pleased when my theorizing or physiologic does match with reality like is that what you'd seen either in your own contest prep or the people you work with
2: yeah for the most part i definitely do but yeah. i find definitely like you touched on the depressive kind of state how our moods definitely decline when we oh yeah Fairly restrict our food on PrEP. And do you think that also contributes to just increased inflammation in the body because of the chronic stress of PrEP? I think,
0: I think all of it. And the chronic stress, that's actually a really important thing to bring up because A, some personalities are just more prone to stress than others. One thing I have seen in terms of stalls, and this is something just worth addressing because I find a lot of, of women are not aware of it, is water retention can occur and I mean, A, you've got menstrual cycle dynamics, which I mean, every woman I mean, some women don't, but you know, your body weight can be up three to five pounds. It'll, you know, first week it's usually the lowest right after start of menstruation, right before ovulation, and typically go up a little bit and it drops again. And then week four, typically when PMS uh occurs, if it's going to, like all bets are off. Right. I usually just tell them like just don't get on the scale like yeah. nothing nothing good comes of it um, <laughs> no. but what can happen frequently is a that alone can make it look like your diet's not working right like let's say you're in, you're doing a fairly moderate you know you're losing a pound a week well if your body weight spikes three pounds before ovulation you'll be like i'm gaining weight on this stupid program f this so i'm gonna go eat so mm-hmm. you have got that but i've also seen that just general water retention in relation to stress. And stress is multifaceted. You've got training stress, you've got the diet stress. You have some people are just more mentally stressed than others. And there's some, there's a couple of papers in, in the book that, that that actually argue that dieting is like it is a psychogenic stress. I mean, you brought something up like you can't separate the body and the brain. Like the brain can stress out this system and stress there. And when you add all those together and to that, I would add, you know, it's so funny, guys, Here, are just going to think, oh, you're just pandering to try to impress. Like, no, it's true. Women have always faced more stress than men because you've also got whatever's, you know, if you're married in a relationship, whatever it is, you've got to like, you've got, you know, let's face it, women are still typically tasked with the housework and the cooking And if you have a partner and children and you're dieting hard, you may be cooking three different meals and you may have your real child and you may have a big child who wanders around the house and doesn't, you know, more women are having to work because it's the nature. So you take all of that stress and now you're going to add dieting and contest prep to that. Holy shit, where it's like, okay, I got to get before I am to go do some cardio and then I got to lift weights after work in the evening and go home and deal with all of the home bullshit, it's, it all adds up and it is all stress to the body. And so what I've seen in many people, and it occurs in men, and I don't know that it necessarily occurs more in women but it can, is you get this stress-related water retention that just makes it look like nothing is happening. And it can last like three weeks. And we'll talk about, there's actually some strategies that can help with that. You actually uh, make, uh, Megan, Meg or Megan, what do you, would you prefer? Meg, Meg is fine. Um, Is you sort of brought something up about that, but don't let me forget about raising calories and lowering activity is the right strategy. And you get this thing occurring and it's like, even the fat loss is technically happening, right? Like, you know, it's very easy for us to go ah you're lying you're cheating you're doing this you're doing that make no mistake is underestimating calories frequently part of it yeah even in physique competitors i've seen it all the time they're like i'm not losing i'm sticking and you go why don't you spot check your food and they're eating three four hundred calories you know it's always that little extra lick. Load up the peanut butter tablespoon, just just a little bit more, and you get that little. And it's like when you're a smaller woman who may be on a four hundred calorie a day deficit, it doesn't take much mismeasurement to really fuck that up. Yeah. Know, again, if you're a guy with an eight hundred calorie deficit, maybe eh, a few hundred calories off, you're still losing. For smaller woman, you could eliminate that daily deficit in a heartbeat.
1: Yeah, I actually I have a, a strong woman right now dieting, wanting to go from a, a heavy class to. Yeah. Uh, middleweight class and you know she was 210 pounds and you know we have a deadline by March and you know I've been pushing her pretty hard because she has plenty of fat to lose but then her body just stopped right (laughs) at 196 we just stopped I was like okay okay okay. are you hungry she's like no not really okay I was like okay we're doing a lot of steps and a lot of cardio how do your legs feel do they feel heavy she's like they feel like cinder block I was like okay okay. stick with your your high medium dig days no cardio she went from one fifty or one ninety six. I just checked her weight right now one ninety three. Just yeah. that water, whoosh,
0: just nope. and, that, that, and it is, you know, they, people now are just like, oh, the whoosh isn't the thing. I'm like, oh, bullshit. It oh, it's a thing because <laughs> I've seen because I've seen it. I've seen it where it, you know, you don't, you can't lose three pounds overnight or in a day or two and have it be actual fat. What it is is that the water retention is masking the fat loss that has occurred. And frequently, what I see. So years ago when I was first in uh, when training sort of more general population, I had this client and she was crazy because, she, I mean, that's unfair. She was just doing what she'd always been told to do. So she came to me, she was older, she jumped straight into two hours of cardio. She was eating like supposedly 400 calories a day. She's like, oh, for breakfast, I have half an egg. How do you have half an egg? Like just crazy. I like <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know much, but I knew enough. And I said, look, all I know is that these massive calorie deficits and this massive amount of activity will not work. I didn't know why then, but, and, and of course, what do you mean? How can eating more and exercising less work better? I go, well, your results are zero now. Like what, what do you have to lose, right? Like it is that battle sometimes with, well, this is what I've always been told. Like, is it working? Well, no, then then what do you have? Like why, at least try it this way. Just. So anyway, so what happened? She went on a cruise. And what do you do when you vacation? You eat more and exercise less. She came back and she lost like five pounds. I'm like, what have I been telling you? She went right back to being crazy because you can't fix crazy sometimes. (laughs) But yeah, this is, so what I, but what I've also frequently seen is with people will be dieting and they'll be stalled and they'll just be like, I don't know. And then they finally just go, you know what? Fuck this. I'm doing everything right. I'm suffering for nothing. And they take a couple of days off. They go ahead and have, you know, eat a bunch of extra carbs or treats. And then they wake up the next day and they're like, holy shit, I dropped three or something more than that, three to five pounds. And one of my often piece of advice is especially for that very just inherently stressed person. They're just because that's the other thing that happens with stress is you're not losing you're doing everything right you're doing your cardio you're watching the, and then it's not happening so what do most people do i have to work harder and it makes it worse and they just get into this loop of well shit if 90 minutes of cardio isn't working and 1200 calories i'm gonna go to 800 calories in two hours and it just makes it worse and worse and worse and frequently that can cause some real problems but for but at the other end you'll see they'll just you know what fuck this and they'll eat and and it'll fall off and, and the weight'll drop. But what I've also seen and recommended often for that very extremely just tightly wound person, and you can always see them online because they type in all caps and they go, Why am I not losing weight? Like you can you can hear it. You can you just sense the stress. And there's a lot of differences in that. You know, some of us go to the bank and get like you, you spend an hour in traffic. You seem to have been like, okay, God, it's time to work. I chill. I chill. But some people hours later will just be like, I cannot believe this. I kind of, you know, they're just, it's constant. And I frequently recommend it to them. And y'all laugh at this if you haven't heard me say it. And I'm like, look, you need to just take an evening and take the day off. You need to get high, get drunk, and get laid. Legit and And, and of course that's assuming you get you know let's face it that you get laid properly like i'm sure getting laid badly doesn't help (laughs) or more generally look just light the candles have some wine have a little personal time just to chill the fuck out and frequently that'll break it um but it is it's a very real thing now what i have not i've never seen that last more than about three weeks unless they start really getting into that loop of stress um Anecdotally, because some people are like, again, it, oh, it's not water retention. I'm like, we've actually known since the early 20th century that this is an occurrence in starvation and very low calories. Like that is that has been known for a while. The mechanisms are up to debate, but it doesn't matter practically. It happens, and it happens when you're just under too much stress. And I've had some people use, you know, those bioelectrical impedance, those the scales that are terrible unless you're very strict about hydration, they always tell me, they're like, it starts giving me really goofy numbers because that's measuring body water. Yeah. And they're like, some weird shit happens right before the waterway drops off. So there is something going on. And frequently, yeah, the best thing to do, like I said, women's bodies more so than men, is when calories are very low and activity is very high and life stress is very high, It causes that to occur. And sometimes the absolute best thing you can do is take one day off a week or at least, I mean, fine, go get your steps in. No formal training, nothing intense, no hard cardio, raise your calories, even to maintenance. Bring up your carbs, whatever, so you can chill. And frequently, that's all it takes. Um, Something else that I've seen, again, this is more of of an anecdotal thing is, you know, again, I was writing about this forever ago, but frequently- even deliberately including a, a mate, one or two maintenance days a week, you know, having a little bit harder deficit on the five days a week and then maybe a little bit, sort and I know you mentioned, you know, high, low, medium days, things that, I mean, calorie cycling has been a thing for decades. We've just nerded it out in, in recent years. Frequently um, doing that, I have known a lot of coaches that work with female physique athletes or just, and they say they don't see the same level of water retention. It just doesn't seem to occur compared to the seven straight days hard deficit, hard training, having that little bit of a. And, and there's a study again in the women's book where it was like seven days of intense training tended to raise stress hormones, and even one day off a week caused them to come back to normal. Now you have to again factor that against when you're on schedule. You know, you've got your strong man, person, woman. I don't know what it's being called now. Your strong. Uh, that competitor physique competitors you have to stay on schedule right like it's one thing in the general public to go i just need to get lean in general and want to get to a certain point but if you got to be in shape by would you say march 8th or whatever date it was march 26, yeah you can't you can't you have to find a balance
4: mm-hmm.
0: i mean losing fat effectively and actually making it a goal you know i've worked with power lifters i had won actually about two years ago and she got a little sloppy in the off season and she was way out of her weight class and she had to lose X amount. And it's like, you have to be at your weight on weigh-in, right? There is no, there aren't any options. Physique competitor being in shape a week late? Doesn't you. so you have to find a balance between. Them. But uh, I find even having, you know, what you do is you just like, all right, if I'm going to have maintenance days that are 10, 20% above maintenance, well, you just shift that onto the other day. Mm -hmm. So you end up with a little bit more variation and very frequently that works so much better, just so much better.
1: Yeah. Um, I always tell my athletes, I can always add food back in. I can't always add in time. So let's like be more aggressive and not fuck around. And Hey, if I need to slow things down, I'll add food back in.
0: Oh no, absolutely. I, I, it's like way better to be a week ahead or two weeks ahead. You can always slow that down, but if you're behind, frequently the extreme manipulations you have to go through Um, which as often as, again, I've heard coaches tell me this or like, yeah, men, you put them on, you know, two weeks of really low calories and it gets them back on schedule. And with women, it frequently breaks them as often as it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would also say, I think there's more in all of this. There's more variation in women than there is probably in men, just in generally speaking, some women can respond to it extremely well. and They just lose fat, you know? Very literally, and they don't run into these problems and others don't, and it's just inherent biology. And it is it just only is what it is. And you, you know, you just you have to find ways to work around a lot of this. Um, which I think is the other problem in terms of like looking at successful physique competitors. By definition, they're the ones that have the ability to make it to stage easily. They frequently are giving advice that may not work for everybody. They're just like, Well, this is what works, yeah, and that's great. But that doesn't mean that you're not, you know, that that's going to be effective for everyone. You, know, some people stall, and I mean the, the 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 heavy leg thing, that was an indicator. She was getting inflamed. She was getting overtrained. It was just going to cause more problems than it. You I mean she could have kept beating her head against the wall for the next three weeks to uh, to make it worse, mm-hmm. or like three days off, three days of higher calories. And frequently that's all it takes to get them back so that they can, can get back on schedule on top sure. of the recovery thing. So Absolutely. there's just that mentality of, well, I've stalled. Clearly it's just, I mean, athletes do it all the time. I'm not making progress. I work harder. No, you probably need to time off. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, so. are there
1: any like supplements, like not necessarily like cortisol suppressing supplements, but specifically for fat loss? Like, Are there any supplements yeah. or drugs to help maybe spot reduce our favorite end quote, so like uh, spot reducers or anything to help with that less, less little body fat, especially around like, you know, the, the trouble areas that you spoke on earlier. Yes.
0: Um, actually, yeah, let me come back to that because I do want to talk about the training stuff because this all ties together. So I talked about, you know, that basically hip and thigh fat doesn't mobilize easily, especially if you're on high carbs and lots of low intensity cardio. It's got to do with the hormonal effects. And I found a couple of like weirds back in the day you know, like, all right, they took women. And when they had them do either weight training of some sort or interval training, it's so like they would take women. They're like, all right, we're going to do a standard diet or standard cardio. And they would just lose completely from their upper body when they would measure it all out. But then they're like, oh, but if we added interval training, if we added heavy weight training, that caused them to lose much more evenly. So, what, and what you're seeing is that the hormonal response to that, in terms again, I won't get into the weeds, raising uh, adrenaline and noradrenaline, epinephrine, norepinephrine, depending on if you're, which side of it, the pond that you're on. Low intensity cardio only raises one of them, and it doesn't do a good job of mobilizing stubborn fat. And higher intensity exercise mobilize, raises the other hormone that does help to mobilize that. And one thing I, I have seen, I do think there's been an improvement. Because I've had people in the modern era go, I haven't seen stubborn fat. And then you look at what they're doing, and it's like, well, you're using lowered carbs and a lot of high intensity training. The reason you're not seeing it is that you're using the protocols I wrote about in 2008, in 2009, or whatever it was, right? It's like that has become more of a typical approach to contest prep and to dieting is to not just go walk on the treadmill for two hours and eat nothing but carbs is to even, you know, pushing yourself harder in the weight rooms, that's the 12s, 15s, doing at least some interval training, right? Now there are limits to how much you can do. And it's because it is helping, those hormones are better mobilizing in terms of the effects they're having on those receptors. So that, and I already talked about lowering carbs, does seem to help with that. Probably through lowering insulin and some other hormonal effects. That also, just so I can talk about it, when you start depleting carbohydrate stores in the muscle, which does not happen on the treadmill, but does happen with weight training. Full body does happen with interval training. When you deplete that glycogen, especially if it's combined, that high intensity training training with moderate carbs, the muscle gets better at burning fat with fuel. So again, that's, you know, fat burning machines. So your that whole approach, which I think has become much more common um, in the modern era is helping with that. But that doesn't mean it solves it. So as far as supplements or potentially drugs, one of the ones I've written about for a while, it's something called Yohindi. And so back in the day before they knew anything, right, back in like the 50s, they were using it for erectile dysfunction. And I bring this up because when you look at the supplement bottles or the stuff that sells it, it will say that women shouldn't use it. The reason for this is that, again, they didn't know shit about shit in the 50s. They just assumed, oh, if it's improving erectile dysfunction, it must be through testosterone. But it's not. It's because among its other effects, it's increasing blood flow. And those same alpha receptors, and I should have mentioned this earlier on, another issue with women's lower body fat is that blood flow is very poor, right? I mean, feel it your hand on fat, you know, abdominal fat, and it's very warm. But you put your hands on your hips and thigh fat, and it's cold because so it has very poor blood flow. So even if you can mobilize the fat, if you can't get it out of the get it out of there, it just goes right back in because the blood flow is so poor. Well, yohimbine not only is inhibiting the receptor on the fat cell to help mobilize that fat, right? You're inhibiting an inhibitor. Again, it's like taking the foot off the brake you're improving blood flow so that's what it was doing for men and they still use it for such i mean it does increase blood flow for women in that area and and i i mean i i've used it and back in the day when i used to diet and i'll be honest i'd be doing cardio and if there was you know if i was in front of behind the stair masters it would frequently be like you know being back in high school um, it, it, you, you can, it's not uncommon to get, especially if you get aroused. I mean, y'all know women can have orgasms doing abdominal work, there's actually research on this. Um, some mm-hmm. women, you know, if they do the Roman, the Roman chair, it seems to be more common. Um, but if you take yohimbine, you will frequently <laughs> feel a tingle in the lower body, which is sort of part of that blood flow mobilization. But as I, I don't know if I put this in the women's book, but, um, don't be stunned if you feel a tingle somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a hypothetical for you i'll not be crude i'll just leave it at that
1: (laughs) a hypothetical for you women that train less, could make trains for lower body four days a week i train it now three days a week as a bikini athlete could you potentially make an argument that women that train their lower bodies more might have an easier time if they're taking your him being maybe mobilizing that fat
0: um yeah predominantly because so the other and the other thing this goes back to the other question so like We've got the beta receptor, right? Which stimulates fat loss. It's like putting on stimulates fat mobilization. It's like putting your foot on the accelerator. Yohimbean in inhibits the inhibitor. So it's like taking your foot off the brake, right? So that just think about being if you push the accelerator and take your foot off the brake. So you're you're kind of hitting both. So yo is inhibiting that bad receptor. And then high intensity exercise through its hormonal response is activating the beta receptor. Right? So what was an old approach to it? You do your weight training, especially if you're doing higher repetitions, maybe a little bit shorter rest intervals, which is kind of an interval style. Then you do your cardio afterwards. right? And, and this was part of this was one of the protocols of my stubborn fat flow. One was eat low carbs. Not everyone can do that because being clinically depressed, not good for dieting in my experience. Not good for anything, <laughs> let's face it. Um, Yohimbine know, can work as well. It is more of a direct effect. However, not everyone likes it. It can kick off anxiety attacks in very high doses. It's not, not every, some people do really dislike it. Although it's funny in my group, it's always the men complain. They're just like, I hate the way it made me feel like. Okay, but a lot of that, yeah, I know, right? It's just like, you need a a cup of (laughs) BTFUT. If you're familiar with that acronym, you all just need to butch the fuck up. But yeah, some sure. of that is the her- The herbal form of yohimbine is terrible. It you get like cold and sweats and the shit's awful. Mm-hmm. If you're going to use it, you should use the, the hydrochloride form. It's called yohimbine hydrochloride. It's much cleaner as a compound. It's much better. Um, for, but for some people, they can't use that because it does kick off anxiety attacks in the brain. Mm-hmm. You can offset that by adding teanie, which I don't know if you're familiar. It's basically a compound. It's found in tea. It's why coffee is stimulating and tea doesn't get you kind of as wound up. It prevents the neurochemical changes that make you anxious. So that's a really nice combination. It's, you know, like to say, combine uppers and downers in mm-hmm. the middle. Um, it's just very smooth in that regard. Yeah. But not everyone can use Yohimbi, mm-hmm. in which case you combine high intensity exercise to mobilize the fat right now high intensity exercise does not burn fat effectively low intensity exercise is better at using it for fuel mm-hmm. right it doesn't mobilize the stubborn fat so that combination is a very good one you yeah. can do you know you can either do your lower body weight training which will increase hormones and blood flow and fat mobilization and then follow that up with some low intensity partly. Mm-hmm. you can do that with more formalized interval training and i wrote that's in the stubborn fat solution where you do like You know, a few minute warm up, do 10 minutes of hard intervals, wait a few minutes, and then you do low intensity cardio. So there's multiple ways of inhibiting those receptors. So I do think some of the more, so what's being done in the weight room, I do think a lot of that has made some of what I wrote about It's not that it makes it unnecessary. It simply is doing what I was writing about back in the day where everyone would go do, you know, two hours of piss-ass cardio to burn truly piss-ass calories. I mean, it's like, yay the 300 calories you burn um so yeah no i, I can do i do think or you know no, i don't know how you train your lower body i don't know if you do uh heavier weights and lower repetitions or higher repetitions.
1: i do a mixed bag honestly because i like sure. mixed bag stuff
0: sure and what i would do in that case to sort of get the best of all worlds is like you know do your heavy stuff first when you're fresh when you feel strong and then when you're starting and you know, towards the end of the workout Go ahead and do, you know, more of like interval style weight training in terms of, you know, go get your sets of 15 or even 20 or whatever you're doing. Keep the rest interval 30, 45 seconds. That's going to generate a hormonal response, very much like doing formal interval training. Then go do 20 or 30 minutes of cardio afterwards. Now you can technically, so just again, be forewarned.
3: Yohimbine
0: can really jack up heart rate and blood pressure and all this stuff. Frequently combining that with other stuff can, like even with high intensity training can make you really feel like you want to die, even under the best of circumstances, but it takes about an, yohimbine takes about an hour to peak. Mm-hmm. So with creative timing, like, so if your weight room workout is now, an and I don't know if it is or is not like what you do is you take that, the yohimbine and the caffeine first thing mm-hmm. and right about the time you're finishing the workout, you'll be primed to do some low-intensity cardio afterwards. You burn off that mobilized fat for fuel. Yohimbine also builds up in the system over time, so it kind of gets more effective with with regular use. It can be used even before low-intensity more. If you're doing the morning fasted cardio grind, and some people still do, Yohimbine can be effective prior to that. Again, it'll do the mobilization, and then you use the cardio to burn it off um so there's a lot of different strategies and the reason i like to approach it that way is like not everyone could do fasted cardio right if you're a woman or a man and you got to get up early and again take care of house stuff and then go to work and you're lifting in the evenings you don't have that option but you can use some of these you know do some high intensity weight training right at the very end sorry higher rep short rest and then finish with 30 minutes of cardio and yeah doing that three times a week would probably be very effective. You also have to weigh that. Cause this was something again, in the two, I've watched all the trends in the 2000s when intervals really got popular oh, so and somehow low intensity cardio made you fat. This was how dumb it got there for a little while. It's like really decades of bodybuilders of seek athletes got to contests doing low intensity cardio, but now it makes you fat. But regardless, and people were doing intervals like five days a week. Mm-hmm. and they were lifting lower body like three days a week and then they were wondering why they were either injured or their legs felt dead all the time i'm like look there's only so much high intensity work you can do especially in a deficit right and they were trying to do hard deficits and it's just like i said it all adds up and they end up broken yeah when they finally crack and they don't just crack for a day they crack completely and end up in a worse place than they were um mm-hmm. As a as a coach friend of mine once put it with regards to physique dieting you don't start with an eating disorder you probably end with one and there's unfortunate realities to that
1: yeah so I feel like, just, go ahead i was gonna say i feel like people get so desperate to want a diet that they kind of cherry-pick research and they're like oh well, i need to do everything because they don't really understand the difference between mobilization versus actually burning the fat they just want to fucking like fire hose it and just try anything that'll stick
0: yes oh no absolutely and that's and again you know the the stubborn fat book gets into the you know the weeds of this because there's kind of three steps mobilization right if you can't get it out of the fat cell nothing else you do matters
4: Hmm.
0: blood flow which there's not a tremendous amount you can do as we talked about but then you also have to burn it off for fuel in the skeletal muscle because like some women's bodies are real good at just putting it somewhere else. So you have to approach all those three steps. Now, what you see is so for people carrying more body fat, there's tons of fat to burn for fuel, but the muscle has lost the ability to burn it effectively. And you get into metabolic inflexibility and some of that stuff. So there, mobilization is not the problem. You need to reteach their body and you put them in a deficit and you start in all that stuff. In the middle range, it all kind of just, it's not a big deal. But at the lean extreme, it's the mobilization that tends to be the problem.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's where you start to get in these strategies that we're talking about. You have to be a little bit more creative. Like I said, for men, is is low ab and low back fat stubborn? It's stubborn-ish, but it's nowhere close to, to what's in the lower body mm-hmm. um, for, for women. I mean, men with lower body fat have the same problems, but they typically don't. So yeah, so all these and, but to your point, what happened in the 2000s, you're like, oh, low carb diets are best for fat loss. High intensity interval training is best for fat loss and metabolic weight training, which got real popular at the time. Yeah. But these were all being studied individually. And they're like, so we're going to throw all these three together. And it just broke everyone. Right? Yeah. These work individually. And I'm like, no, yeah. you have to take into account. So you know, Meg said she's training the lower body four days a week. Mm -hmm. How much extra fucking high intensity work can you do?
2: Die. (laughs) The
0: answer is none, right? Like, because especially if you're, you know, let's say you're doing lower body Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Well, if you do intervals Wednesday, Saturday, you're now training your legs intensely six days a week. No human can recover from that. Right? And I would point out, like, look, high level level athletes, you know, endurance athletes, they usually do true interval training twice a week. And that's not while they're dieting. This idea that they could do it on low calories week in, week out, and not is like crazy. Now, if you're doing a typical legs push-pull split three days a week, yeah, you can do intervals a couple days a week because you're only training legs hard once a week. If you're lifting legs heavy, you know, twice a week, maybe you can do intervals once a week. Maybe. It just depends, you know, but even then, you're at four days a week of high-intensity leg training eventually something breaks and it's the dieter, right? Like it's, that's what eventually, eventually your system is going to, especially if you're trying to keep bringing calories, yeah, now, if you keep calories a little bit higher, maybe. So there's all these balancing factors that don't tend to get taken into account. Now, one thing, this will sound very odd. Let's say someone wants to do heavy lower body training or whatever, twice a week, and they also want to do intervals. What I often frequently recommend is doing the intervals and the weight training on the same day, which seems very con- – I mean, it makes for one hell of an awful day. Yeah. But get five days of recovery a week, right? Better to stack that really stressful days on two days a week than, again, to have four high-intensity leg days. But, again, it just depends on what does the rest of your week look like? How much more are you able to handle? And, you know, like we talked about, if you just end your weight room work, your lower body work, with even 10 minutes of just, you know, what I I tend to call metabolic weight training, which Mm -hmm. means high rep, short rest intervals. It will deplete some muscle glycogen. That will improve fat burning in the muscle. It will give you a hormonal response, exactly like if you get on the bike or the Stairmaster or the the step mill or whatever. Um, And then you go finish up with 20 or 30 minutes of cardio and you achieve the exact same thing Mm -hmm. without trying to tack on, all of this extra high intensity work. Cuz again I think women's bodies especially like they're just, you know, they get stressed out a lot more easily. That's Stuff that men can get away with simply doesn't work for women. Like here's another just random example. I said I'll try not to get too hard into the weeds. So for years like we had the menstrual cycle dysfunction thing. And nobody really knew what it was. I mean we still have the same ideas. And I'll tell you my absolute favorite The idea was if women's body fat got below a certain level, they would stop. They would lose their cycle, Mm -hmm. right? We knew that you have to hit a certain body fat level to start puberty. So it made sense. But then when you looked at it, you're like, there are women at 13% body fat who still have a menstrual cycle and there are women at 24 that don't. There's more to it. Um, My favorite theory of the day, (laughs) find the most obscure stuff. There was some researcher who felt that it was the chronic nipple stimulation from, because as you usually seen in runners, mm-hmm. it was raising prolactin levels that we do know mm-hmm. can inhibit menstrual. St- I mean, again, we didn't know sh- they didn't know shit about shit, right? Like it's easy to look back. I mean, in 20 years, we're going to look back now and go, wow, let's look at everything we got wrong. So it's easy, but it's just entertaining to me. So there's a researcher in, in like the late 90s, 2000s. This is a big issue, right? what they called the female athlete triad, which again was typically eating disorders, low bone mineral density, and reproductive dysfunction. This was not a joke. And although I do find it, why'd they have to call it the female athlete triad? Why'd they have to get the acronym FAT? I just thought this was like, could y'all, I mean, I just, whatever. That's me being somewhat silly. They've got a different name for (laughs) now. So this researcher named Ann Luce came through.
1: I actually worked under her, fun fact, at Ohio University.
0: Yeah, I mean, she's like, she, like her research was brilliant and it mm-hmm. absolutely changed the nature of, of the field and what we realized was going on. And she studied something called energy availability, right? So, calorie balance is calories in versus calories out. That's just basic fat balance. That energy availability is the number of calories coming in minus what you're burning in exercise. And what that represents is the number of calories left over to support bodily processes, right? So it's like I talked about earlier in this thing, that when that goes below a certain level, right, the body has to make choices, right? So again, if you're starving to death. You're in a concentration camp. The body has to keep your heart beating. has to keep your brain braining and all that stuff. Reproductive function, not so important. Immune system function, not so important at the time because in the short term, you're not going to die, right? And if anything, reproductive functions, ceasing makes sense. If you're starving, not the best time to get pregnant. So that all makes sense. And that had been around for a while. And so she did these really amazing studies that were like five. I mean, they were only five days long. So she took women and she either had them eat at maintenance and do a ton of activity. Or do do no exercise and cut calories. And she created the identical energy balance. Right, they were, they were very, she wanted to see, is there a difference between exercise and, and deficit? And what she found was that within five days, there was a reduction in luteinizing hormone, which is what is involved in regulating menstrual cycle dysfunction. And that doesn't mean she was seeing, they were seeing menstrual cycle dysfunction in five days, but that is what leads to it in the long term. Five days at the extremes. So then she looked at it in a little bit more detail and was looking, okay, is there a threshold and she created these energy cap, these energy availability levels. And it was like, well, 30 calories per kilogram of lean body mass. And it was only lean body mass. It wasn't fat mass. And she looked at like 30, 20, 10, 5, and 45. And I went, okay, at 45, everything's normal. Mm-hmm. You know, supposed sufficient calories. And at 30, that's when the problem started. And way below that, that's when shit cratered. And by that, I mean, not only luteinizing hormone, thyroid would crash, cortisol would go up. You know, the, it it is a starvation response in the sense of this is the hormonal response to dieting. It's not like metabolic damage, but, but it is, this occurs. Then they started looking in more detail. And what they found was that in women, if women had lost their menstrual cycle, they were always below third, that 30 value, but not all women below 30 had lost their menstrual cycle right? So it wasn't like everyone would. It was that they just, it gets a little more complicated. We know now that, you know, what they used to look at is they didn't know anybody. Normal menstrual cycle, nothing, because that's how you could measure. We now know that there's a couple of intermediate steps, these sort of sub, uh, subclinical eating disorder or menstrual cycle dysfunction that you, you can't tell that they're occurring. Those can occur at higher levels, those can occur within like two weeks of hard exercise of women. Like it doesn't take much
4: mm-hmm. because
0: women's reproductive systems are so complex and so sensitive to this stuff. So, and now more research because again, in the long term, they're like, all right, women at thirty-two calories per kg, we may see menstrual cycle dysfunction because it would be great if staying above that level could prevent everything from happening. But again, if you're dieting for six months, it's a matter of when, not if, generally speaking. Although, interestingly, as women get older, they are less sensitive to this stuff. Um, it's what's called reproductive age, which is the number of years since they hit puberty, not biological age. So, after like 14 years, women's system, so older competitors may not face this. But again, let's face it, we're usually dealing with younger female, younger athletes, younger in, teenage high school in the 20s they're very sensitive but which is a very long way of getting the facts so then they test this in men because they just weren't really seeing this in men outside of the extremes which is you know the highest level runners horse jockeys of all things and but when they've studied it in women once you cross that 30 threshold you start to see the problems occurring for men about 15 Men can use deficits, so massive, and their system just won't shut down. And for women, it will much, 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 much earlier, which just kind of points to all of this. When women's systems you know, sense this lack of energy availability, it just goes, okay, whoa, I need to slow everything down. Now briefly, and again in the 2000s, when this research sort of started, there was this idea, women should never go, low, go below this level ever. And that would be great, except that you'll never make it to stage, mm-hmm. ever. At some point, you have to cross that level. Again, the goal is to do it as late as possible. In front. There's no avoiding it to get the 12% body fat. Like, yeah, bikini competitor, he needs to be, what, 15, 16, somewhere in that range these days. Might, but if you're looking for uh, classic physique, bodybuilding, even uh, I think fitness is, is down at those extremes. Like, so It's a matter of when, not if. You just want to hold it, but the point of that all being that men just don't get it till much, much, much later, if they get it at all. And mm-hmm. even if they do, you don't see the same damage to bone mineral density. You don't see these things that can really cause problems in women. You don't like you may see like low testosterone and hypogonadism, but you won't see a loss of menstrual cycle dysfunction. Um, now, in recent years, they have, and there's a lot of debate over this. The IOC, well, A, they've gotten away from these extremes. It's no longer eating disorders, osteoporosis, and no menstrual cycle function. Now it's like dysregulated eating, which can mean a bunch of different things. Some athletes just don't eat enough because their appetite's not there. Some of them do it because they're chronically dieting. Some of them have explicit eating disorders. Bone mineral density, anything below normal. It could be osteopenia, it could be osteoporosis. Menstrual cycle dysfunction can be a range of things. So it's more included, but then the IOC came in and said, "Well, we need to include men in this," and they have started calling it relative energy deficiency syndrome, the saying that it's it's that, and there was a lot of debate over this, mainly from researchers like um, Luke's and D'Souza, that are like, "Look, taking it away from calling it the female athlete triad is really de-emphasizing the fact that this profoundly impacts women." The criticisms were fell on deaf ears, but there's a lot of debate over this because said so for men, it's yeah, whatever. I mean, I, I, I will joke with men. They're like, oh, I want to get to single digits. You know, it's like, yeah, men will diet down to get a six pack, hoping that it'll get women. Penis doesn't work because all the hormones are screwed up, right? Like, like a man at that level, like, sorry, dude, your testosterone is going to be in the sugar. Mm-hmm. So but for women it can cause you know bone mineral density that may or may not come back it can cause reproductive dysfunction it causes a whole lot of issues that are just not seen but it happens earlier Mm -hmm. so it's really just a matter of you know not only crossing that as late as possible um which i've got one more thought after that but i want to come back to what we talked about with higher calories because then that raises the question okay do maintenance days or what I used to call refeeds. I've kind of gotten away from that terminology or carb ups or whatever you want to call them. Does that offset this? And the answer is, it depends. So Luke's herself, one of her later studies, wanted to see how quickly can we reverse this. So she took women, five days, low energy availability, and then she just overfed the shit out of them. It was something like double maintenance, 6,000 calories. I mean, just absolutely force fed these women because that's what they'd seen in in uh, animal studies and the results nothing just didn't one day was not enough in in the in that sense but then there was another study that looked at it kind of luckily and they're like all right they had women eat nothing for 3 days and they saw the same hormone response and then for whatever reason they're like we're going to put them at maintenance for 2 days and remeasure everything and everything did rebound to normal. So what this sort of tells me is that to a degree, having, you know, two maintenance days during the week during a hard diet might go a long way in at least limiting this. Like I said, you can't stop it. When you get lean, it's gonna happen, no matter what you do, other than, you know, you wanna put pharmaceuticals in. And I don't know, do y'all talk about drug stuff? Because I mean Oh yeah. um, yeah, 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 what I mean, no, whatever. It's it's all good. I mean, it's part of it's part of sports. That is the reality of it. And one thing that would absolutely potentially work very well with ephedrine, especially at the ends, would be like clen. Clen hammers the beta receptor. You know, again, that puts the accelerator on. Use that that yohimbine know, to take the break off. It's a fantastic combination. Uh-huh. Um, just like I said, it can jack apart in blood pressure. But then again. A women tend to run lower in that regards anyway, and by the time you're at the end of contest prep, the hard bit is keeping your blood pressure normal, not from going too high. Like, if, so I tend to, when I write about it, I tend to say don't combine the two, because I'm the, because I know how the general public responds to this stuff. But when you're at the end of contest prep, everything's so shut down as it yeah. is. Um, yeah. So, but anyway, so oh yeah, so these those two maintenance days might help. Um, in some, and it may have other benefits preventing some of the water retention. And also it's the recovery. Another thing that gets forgotten about with women when they're dieting very hard, since they're smaller, they don't have the same calories to work with. Once your protein's a certain level, you often have to make some hard choices between carbs and fats yeah. because they're gonna drop. And to keep carbs high enough, either out of the depression range or the fuel training, that's gonna be very low. That can cause one set of issues if that's high enough carbs may have to be very low what do you do well those maintenance days on top of everything else give you a chance to refill muscle glycogen refill muscle carbohydrate to sustain the next amount of training um so that's the, so i think they they have potential again ad- advantages so long as they're not slowing down your prep so long as they're not throwing you off the wagon, which does happen to some people. Um, I know some physique guys that tried it. They tried diet breaks and they tried refeeds and all that stuff, and they're like, "Look, once I'm in in prep mode, if I do that, it sort of unflips the switch, and I have a lot of trouble getting back on my diet." But that's an individual thing. Yeah. But those strategies do seem to. I mean, you know, you mentioned the the, the strongman competitor, right? She's not trying to get to the extremes of low body fat. No,
1: no. You know,
0: We're just trying to make it weight. You manip- <laughs> can always manipulate body weight um the last week. You know, you gotta no, get her sure. within five to ten percent uh, of, of the body weight she needs to oh, hit, and she can blast all the last bit with all the, the pre that, that weekly nonsense. Um sort of in that vein, just as a, something to throw out, I mentioned this female power lifter that had to lose like a ton of fat. Um not a ton of fat, but enough. To, to to make it to make her weight class, and one thing I've done that goes into sort of falls in the maintenance thing and the extremes, and sometimes you have to do some some stuff. She's training four days a week for typical powerlifting, and I have found and heard anecdotally that for for athletes in performance sports, and by that I mean physique training is not performance oriented, right? It is important, but physique is the the only event where what you do in the gym is by and large, not what you do for competition. It's the only one, which is why it's so unique and so fascinating in that regard. Performance athletes have to worry about maintaining performance, right? Not only does she have to make weight, she has to, or, or get to the lower weight class to be more competitive. She can't have her strength drop too far. So what I do with my power lifter is, I, and also just dieting moderately often just sucks. It's just, it's awful. It depends on the person, some people, especially if they're training and they just want the same thing every day. So what I had her do is I actually set her up. So on like her on her training days, she ate a maintenance mm-hmm. worth the training. And then on the other three days a week, I put her on my rapid fat loss diet. I'm like, you're going to be on 600 calories, but it's only three days a week. And I'm sorry. I've only had one person be like, I can't even do that one day a week. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. You want to do a competition and you're telling me you can't not eat bread for a day? Come on anybody can do it for a day or two so that way i still created the same weekly deficit Mm -hmm. but was able to support her training and Mm -hmm. she actually did she made it she lost the fat made her weight class and she lost zero strength by doing it that way so that's another that's more for performance oriented stuff most physique competitors tend to train five or six days a week they Mm -hmm. don't and again performance is not as relevant the higher calorie days can still be beneficial, just like the lower calorie days. You end up with the same weekly deficit, but you can get, it can help training, it can help psychologically, it may help with some of the hormonal stuff, it may help with some of the water retention stuff. So I think a lot of those ideas, um, you know, maybe to, it may even to a greater degree, potentially beneficial for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so,
1: Absolutely. Meg, any maybe. final questions?
2: Yeah, I had just one quick one where you would name off three, like, micro nuances that people seem to, like, stress over the most, but probably matter the least in the grand.
0: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, honestly, the percentages, mm-hmm. oh, it should it be 35 or 38%? Pro, like, I don't care about percentages. Like, protein needs to be where it is, mm-hmm. one gram per pound or 1.5 grams per pound of lean body. That's whatever you decide to set it up that you kind of have to set percentages but it's like look somewhere between a quarter and half a gram per pound is about right and then carbs are just whatever you got left or i mean seriously whatever the percentages fall out to be because that will scale with your activity right like if you're doing higher amounts of activity you will have relatively more carbs in both an absolute well an absolute a percentage sense but who gives a shit right like protein is non-negotiable fat you may have to play with and then carbs are just the rest and worrying whether it's 30 or 32 or 36, like it, it doesn't matter. I, I, your body doesn't care about percentages. It cares about grams per unit body weight. Um, actually even just as sort of a random note what I talked about early on, cause it's interesting. Nobody even wrote a book about sports nutrition for women. I've got one It was like 2009. Seriously, women have been competing at high levels in sport, Russians and the Germans in the Olympics since the 50s and 60s, America since the 70s, and it took 40 fucking years for someone to sit down and go, maybe we should look at differences, like seriously. So yeah, percentages is absolutely one of them. Um, I think worrying about the whole, you know, again, the whole fat burning zone, that's been around for decades. Worrying, you know, yes, I know I did mention some stuff that ties into this. Women use more fat for fuel but often like that almost to a degree lower intensity stuff may not be as effective towards the end but you have to balance that against against the training stuff god what's the third micro nuance that people really fixate on i don't know i don't think well it depends on population like in the physique comp you know as, as crazy as physique always has been talk about a lot of I mean, a lot of it is lore and nonsense, but a lot of it is time-tested, like, you know, as much as we like to dismiss bro science, people don't get results for seven decades without doing something right. Yeah. Um, I mean, probably a lot of the bullshit fat-burning stuff. I mean, the things that work versus Mm -hmm. the things that don't work. There's a handful, you know, you mean definitely has some benefits. A feathering can work, um... Most of the stuff that's out there just doesn't do, you know, a whole hell of a lot. So probably those three. Is that what y'all kind of see in your practice in terms of, like, what do y'all see people micro obsessing about?
1: The BIA, the the body fat percentage fluctuating, like, because they didn't take a piss before stepping on the scale. Oh, my God. Yeah,
0: that's actually, that reminds me one thing. And this is, I find a lot of women are not aware of this. Well. There's two things that are related. One is this obsession with day-to-day changes. Yeah. Right? And I know, I've known physique competitors that are trainers and coaches that fucking know better. Yeah. And it still drives them nuts. Mm -hmm. My weights up two pounds. Well, did you pee? Did you poo? Like that could be anything. (laughs) Right? And that's why at least now people, you know, you do the seven-day weight, use the rolling trend. Like that smooths it all out. But people still get so... I mean, I'm not saying it didn't, I didn't do it too, but it will drive people nuts. Mm -hmm. And that's also where you see people will just overreact to stuff like, oh my God, my weight's up. I'm going to do an extra 45 minutes of cardio. I ate an extra hundred, all all that, you know, neurotic shit that just puts you straight into exercise bulimia or an eating disorder or whatever. I mean, make no mistake, contest prep, and this is in no way to downplay how awful eating disorders are. I suspect most successful, well, athletes in general, but physique especially, probably starting out with a little bit of a subclinical, I mean, you have to, to want to starve yourself to the extremes, you kind of got to enjoy being hungry a little, like, again, this sounds horrific, but it hopefully will come across, like, you don't need an eating disorder to be a successful physique competitor, but it doesn't hurt, Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, like I said, I know that sounds, and it is, but some of the work... Suggesting that athletes develop eating disorders, it's probably more that like runners are super skinny because they probably ran anore- a little like subclinically anorexic to begin with. But yeah, but there's that. But that then ties into the whole menstrual cycle dynamics. I found a lot of women that aren't aware of that or don't don't think about it. Right? Mm-hmm. They're like I've done things. My weight's here, and then a week later, what the fuck? Yeah, mm-hmm. it drops and it goes down. And women frequently have to weigh well, they can only compare the same week of the same week of the cycle. This is assuming that they're menstruating. This is assuming that that's all changing. If they're on birth control, among other potential benefits, it just smooths this shit out, right? For good or for bad. It just makes it so that this is less of a concern. Um, if there's, again, a benefit towards the end of contest prep to losing your period, it smooths it out too. You don't see the month, the, month, the week, the week stuff going on like, you know, it's, it's indicative that there's a problem, but it is, I guess, a benefit in one way. Um, but women may have to compare body weight week one to week one, because yeah. those are the only comparable values week two to week two, week three to week three. And then again, just stay off the scale during week four. It's just, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a good thing. And so what you may see, right? Let's say woman's losing a pound a week at week one. Now she's 130 Just made up values. A month later, she down four pounds, right? Or, yeah, 126, she's losing a pound a week. Now, in the second week, pre-ovulation, she may have started at 133, but she should be down to 129, right? It should be the same four pounds, just from a different value. And then week three usually drops a little bit, traditionally. So maybe she's at 131 instead of 133. Well, I would expect 127. So the same relative changes, And in week four, don't, <laughs> just... Just don't. Um, but that, and that's even something women can take, you know, you can get that data before you start your diet, right? If you know, all right, I on average gain three pounds from week one to week two and then lose two and then again week four, wow. Like you can start, you can just plan that in. Mm-hmm. But again, I see women, they're like, ah, I started my diet, I'm down two pounds. And then week two, I was like, well, I haven't lost a pound. No, you're holding two pounds of water that is offsetting it in that. Is just something that needs to. Women need to keep in mind. But again, and don't deal with.
2: Yeah, that's definitely something I remind my girls of. And then also like the digestion changes with oh, our menstrual you. cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, they just complain about like constipation around ovulation. I'm like, well, no shit. And they're like, give me more fiber, and I'm like, no, just just wait a couple of days,
0: like yeah. patience. But I mean, like, and I and I get it, and especially you know, if you're a physique competitor, it's like, yeah, you know, I don't, my tummy is pooched out, and I'm lean, and I've got the food baby, and it makes, I don't like the way I look, and even with the water weight stuff, and people are like, oh, should I take a diuretic? It's like, look, dryness only counts on competition day. Mm-hmm. I'm getting crazy about this. I knew a guy years ago who started. He's like, yeah, I started my diuretic twelve weeks out uh why yeah i mean it's like an herbal it was herbal shit but even so like and then he forgot to diet like he did that instead of just kind of forgot to diet which happens a lot but yeah all these things that can occur throughout the menstrual cycle there's also we didn't talk about it much but changes in energy levels changes in what you're able to do and i've seen that occurring and then i know we're. i always run along we'll wrap it up is women who are very driven and very dedicated and it's not a bad thing some of them just We'll see performance changes. Some of them see nothing. It just depends on the woman. There's more, there's a lot of variability here. But I've seen, you know, I a trainee once, week one, right after menstruation, PRs mm-hmm. without fail. Week two, should be a little bit weaker. Week three, she'd be stronger. And then week four her training would completely shit the bed. Like literally, she couldn't do more than 60% on machines. And me being a dumb guy, I didn't know any better. I'd just go in and go, what what what's your problem? Lift the weight. Like, and then I started thinking about it and I'm like, huh, this is syncing up exactly. So I train, I just programmed her training around that. Because yeah. seriously, she would write the week before menstruation for training and then she would start and then two days later she'd pop off PRs. Like, with, so I just plan the training around that. But if you've got someone who's super intense and this is biological, I know in the modern era, it's just like, nope, PMS is, you know, part of the patriarchy to whatever. No, it's biological, whatever. Um, It just is. And if you've got someone who just doesn't have it that fourth week, you can't just mental your way through it. You can't. I mean, well, you can try but I've seen women that have that frequently just start beating themselves up over it of, I was weak, I don't have the drive. I mean, yeah, you have to separate that away from like what you had with your competitor. Is it that the training and dieting is wrong? But if you see that, that literally every fourth week, everything is going terribly. Right, that's, and often I mean hunger spikes after ovulation and it can be very, but metabolic rate frequently goes up a little bit and you can find ways to, to possibly, you can either go well, we're gonna take a little bit more fat loss or we can raise your calories a little bit to compensate depending on how, how uh, I think I'm the first person to recommend dark chocolate medicinally. I really thought that would give me points from this book and I'm like, no, it's true. Women, you, you do like, you know, that better to eat that hundred calories, right? and choose to do it than Mm -hmm. to eat it and feel guilty and end up face down in the bag. I mean, like better to do that. So yeah. So with, with that and here, and this will be my final point is women have to be their Women are their own best scientists. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're coaching, you're observing this, you're keeping good records. You know, Uh, there's one study that looked at female soccer players and they had them, they did the same training for a month and they had them record, you know, rating of perceived exertion and sleep and heart rate and mood and all that stuff to gather data on what any individual athlete was experiencing. Like I said, I've seen a flat line, I've seen this, and I've seen, you know, that, and, you know, everything just crashes. And then taking that into account, you know, maybe you do more training in the high intensity work in the first three weeks. All right, this week we're going to deload you a little bit. Because you're not going to have it. We're going to keep the deficit, keep the cardio, but not beat you up because it's not going to be there. And better to do, you know, you can still maintain that. And then, all right, first couple of weeks of the month, we can really, you know, beat up on you again because you're feeling good. And there's some data that women may respond better to training in the first two weeks of the cycle for the last two. It's not, you know, super, super strong. And it's not like they don't adapt but the hormonal profile in the second half of the cycle is worse than in the first half. You know, you can come up with all kinds of creative ways to adjust training and diet throughout the cycle. And for some people it's good. And for other people it may not be necessary, but again, that's such an individual thing. Um, And that will, you know, again, to truly wrap up, this will, I mean, if you've got an assisted competitor, a lot of this doesn't matter. Like I said, that's what the Germans and Russians did. The, the China. i read something about the chinese olympic team their are olympic lifters the first thing i read said ah oh, they take their women's menstrual cycle into account and then the next thing i read a couple of years later were that they stopped doing that i'm like oh they started juicing the hell out of them with no it makes it it makes it a moot point i don't know if you talked about that with broderick but you know once you just eliminate the menstrual cycle completely you don't get those fluctuations i mean with men training it's a line yeah, you know, it's a joke. Men are the same asshole every day in the gym. <laughs> and with women, you know, it, ca- it can be that. Mm-hmm. There can be mood changes. I mean, let's just face it. Um, in that fourth week of the cycle, as the research likes to put it, women are more emotionally labile, which is a nice way of saying they can become kind of a mess. <laughs> but I mean, but again, it's it's neurological. It's biochemical. Serotonin is dropping. Dopamine is dropping. None of that helps with mood. PMDD is a very serious thing. Women can drop into full-on suicidal ideation if they're prone to it. I mean, like this this shit's not a joke. And it becomes a real problem. And, you know, that would be the worst time to be on low carbs. That might be a time, you know. Some women have to go on an antidepressant one week out of the month. Like, this shit's no joke. And if you establish that that's the case, that is something that you as a coach or they as an athlete can start proactively planning for. You know, I've, it, it's, I, it's, I think I wrote about this in, in like, there's nothing that says, like, let's say you had someone on week four, everything just went terribly and they were not going to be able to stick to their diet. You could very easily set up a cycle with the first three weeks of the month, use a little bit bigger deficit week four, put them in maintenance. Like, if you know, they're not going to make it through, as long as you're generating the same total deficit, have you ever, have y'all ever done that? Just because I'm curious or had to, yeah, I've
1: had like cycle syncing with stuff like that, with like carb rotations and stuff like that, especially because it was a female who did contest prep with a coach that did the whole 1,400 calories, two hours of cardio for the entire 20 weeks. She lost her oh, period and all she wanted to do was become a mom. And so to get her cycle back, we did kind of like some cycle syncing stuff with her training and nutrition. And then she literally had a beautiful baby girl like six months ago. So
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's, like I said, that's the typical male coach. They're just like, well, this is what works on all my dudes. Yep. Um, And it doesn't, like I said, it it, mean, it causes, it can cause damage.
1: Mm -hmm. Not to mention, I think they use an AI, like, 12 weeks out, too. Yeah, love that.
0: Yeah, don't get me, you know, these generic, I know what they're trying to do, Mm -hmm. but they're always based on whatever philosophy that the coach has. I mean, I know there's, there's... There is an app that, God, what was it called? I know I saved it. That actually lets women. Um, what was this thing called? Uh, Fitter Woman. You know that one? No. Ftr Woman at the App Store. That I want to. I'll send you. I'll, I'll email it to you just because I thought it was interesting. And what it what it's doing, I think, is letting women track cycle dynamics. Mm. training rpe things of that nature oh, to try to cool. put it in um, to, to a model i mean again make no mistake even with men you have to see what they're good for on the day but for mm-hmm. men it's just a matter of like are they tired was monday really hard yeah. for women it may be a weekly hormonal biological physiological thing that's I and mean, yeah you treat women as individuals but once you find that that pattern um taking that into account Um, when you've had women with menstrual cycle dysfunction which i'm sure you've had Mm -hmm. i mean i've talked to broderick and he gets so many competitors that like they're like yep work with some traditional coach who put them on just terrifying Mm -hmm. amounts like i'm not i'm not a drug guy but i know that to be dangerous and would come in and it's like amounts that would be good for a beginner male and that's just like "Yep, 200 micrograms of thyroid and 120 of clan and god knows how much of this other stuff and he's like yeah I mean, it just fucks them
1: mm-hmm. we see it with coaches and unfortunately more trt clinics popping up trying to essentially make women trans with their their testes yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: all they know is this is the doses we use in men without having that that basis i mean i, I always tell women that are having any hormonal issues whether it's thyroid or hormonal I and mean, we're just now starting to realize it'll become more normalized in a decade that women do need testosterone replacement as they hit HRT, you know? But there's still that testosterone. That's a man's hormone. What? (laughs) Same thing, estrogen, progesterone, important. The research is like, yeah, absolutely. And, but it doesn't take much. And I've always told women, you know, thyroid goes ignored Mm -hmm. by, you know, traditional doctors. Your numbers look good. And the woman's like, but I feel like shit. And my skin is dry, and my hair is falling out, and I'm clinically depressed. But your numbers look good. Fantastic. And then it goes with, ah, it's all in your head. You're histrionic, blah, 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 blah. Go find, you know, a clinic that is run, you know, not, not, I mean, female doctors can be just as bad sometimes, but go find someone that's, you know, holistic, that's a little bit on the left side of traditional, like <laughs> a little woo, but not too far gone. And like, but who will treat you as a patient rather than as a set of lab tests who will, you know, titrate up and figure out what doses of this stuff,
4: Mm -hmm. you know,
0: especially with thyroid. I know a lot of women, they're like in the normal range. I feel terrible and high normal. Everything's fantastic. Like you have to find someone that will, you know, start you on five to 10 milligrams of testosterone. You know, women don't eat more than maybe 25 a week. And use any more than that that is like that is transition level that is you know that's male hrt by the time you get 150 200 milligram
4: mm-hmm. range,
0: yeah. women need about one tenth to one thirtieth but you got to yeah. find some women who will then balance estrogen and progesterone and get all of that working together and generic approaches are generic mm-hmm. and true. contest prep has traditionally been very generic um, especially with male coaches coaching women agree yeah, even worse things happen but that's mm-hmm. separate.
1: absolutely yeah. well, Lyle thank you so very much for coming on for the me. podcast it was yeah. a pleasure you know, like, hearing from you and learning from you
0: I enjoy it and like I said from my end a I'm I always love when people like are getting good information out there um <laughs> but also uh I was going to say, and I love hearing myself talk. But yeah, no, I like I, I said, I anybody who's getting good info, like I'm always going to be very much supportive. So mm-hmm. it's time. Uh, women's stuff is getting better, but it's still yeah. out there. I'm yep. going to say, fresh information. So it's getting better at least, but it's just as harmful with a lot of that. So, mm-hmm. uh, but also, oh, I was, this just you have to more so with women than men, treat them as individuals mm-hmm. far yeah. more so, and take considerations that just. Will never exist for men. So. Absolutely, and
1: guys, if you're listening to this, if you take anything away from this podcast, is it's the stairmaster will not make you lose your ovaries. Like that's just it, like if you yeah. take
0: anything away from this, it just like I said, I've actually, if you get bored, I've got a his, I've got a, an article series on my website. I looked at the history of this of women in sport. That I mean, the stuff that they, you know, just insane stuff. Some of which turns out to be partially true but not to the level that you know stuff like there was a a, a expert who said women shouldn't do the i want to say the uh, pole vault because being upside no ski jumping because mm-hmm. the, the the impact would cause it to stretch their uterus like you can't make shit like this up or that mm-hmm. one of them and this is back in the day when i think a lot of women pcos they're just like when women engage in high-level sport, it would complete their, uh, you know, uh, transformation into a man. And they used you know, the term term, uh, no, it wasn't fishwife. I've now forgotten what it is. But it is really a, just a uh, derogatory term for women that kind of means like nagging fishwife. But if you look back over, oh, it's called a virago, And but historically, it meant a female, <laughs> a female, a female warrior. But it was you and they're just like, yep, yeah, this will this will continue a domineering, violent or bad tempered woman. That's the current the current definition of it. But archaic, a woman of masculine strength or spirit. So it got called. Co- but they're like, "Yep, yeah, women will just turn into men and their ovaries will atrophy and all this other crazy shit. And they're still, you know, it's still kind of out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately. So, yeah, but your ovaries will not fall out of the Yeah. Jesus Christ! And if they do, please I seek medical apologize.
2: attention. Yeah, seriously, not us.
0: <laughs> Wait, say that again.
1: I was saying, if they do fall out, please seek medical attention. Don't contact. Um, them. <laughs> yes, I, I yes, I agree with you. Oh my goodness! All right, guys. Until next time, we'll catch you in the next week's episode. Bye. Bye.